I was consumed with my work. I took care of everybody that reported to me, but I didn't have time for chit chat. And I was a machine. I was kind, I promoted people, but I was never there as a human being. I was trained professionally as a lawyer, but I've had four different careers. Poor kid who goes to a law school that requires suit and coat and tie every day, and his parents only have enough money to buy him one coat, which I wore seven days a week for four months till I got the law changed. Here I was, I was in Paris, London, Singapore, Japan. It took three big events for me to say, I gotta get help. My brother called me and said, bro, we got a problem. I actually put the phone down and fell into the floor and started crying. Only time I ever cried in my life. And I said, I'm losing everything. Has it ever happened to you that you were fearful about the future? And how do you deal with that? Saturday night I woke up and I mean, I couldn't go back to sleep. I was fearful of X hat, something happening. Fear is a negative emotion. You have to accept it. You can't let it control you and you have to move on from it. I was in the final two for CEO of a major company. The partner, senior partner called me up and says, I'd like to take you to lunch next week. We'll go to lunch. And he says, you're the most qualified person. I said, well, thank you. I'm looking forward to the job. And he said, I'm not going to give you the job. And my wife was right. And she basically sat down and said, you're never here when you're here. You're all about your work. That's not working for me. And this is when I did the stupidest thing in my life. It shows you how far gone I was. It's embarrassing to say. My guest today, in the very first episode of Trace of Victory, is Edward Diaz. Now, if you're new to the show, Trace of Victory is my own personal journey to seek out inspiring individuals from all walks of life with different backgrounds and expertise who can help us answer a simple question. How do you discover your path in life? These conversations will share the different roads these people took, their mistakes, and more importantly, the myths they debunked. Now, Edward is a top authority on organization and human behavior. His book, Smart Growth, was named a top 25 business book by Inc. Magazine. His book, Learn or Die, was awarded the Wells Fargo Award for Research Excellence. And one of the best parts of the book that had a profound effect on my life was the 54 pages chapter about Ray Dalio. It was the first time Ray Dalio allowed somebody to enter Bridgewater, learn about what made his company so successful, and then share it with the world. And finally, his book, Hyper Learning, How to Adapt to the Speed of Change, truly sets forth a cognitive, emotional, and behavioral model designed to enhance the highest level of human performance in the new digital age. So, before we get started, let me just tell you something. Um, this is something that I always wanted to do. And I'm new to this podcasting YouTube thing, but it's going to get better. Day by day, show by show, it's going to get better. 
I'm gonna put every single thing that I have into this project. And I hope that five, six years from now, at least 1,000 people will deeply care about this show. So thank you so much for watching and I hope you enjoy this conversation. I thought about how I would start this conversation, you know, and it's my first time doing something like this. So if you have any feedback or anything that you believe I could improve, it would be more than helpful at the end of the conversation. So I wanna start by when I read your um, biography on your website, I was kind of fascinated by, and also when I watched a couple of interviews um, on YouTube, I was kind of fascinated by these two different uh, people that I saw. Um, the Edward, who was so focused on uh, success, so focused on uh, being the best, uh, so focused on uh, you know helping other people, but really focus on how can I be the best, how can I be the smartest person in the room. And then from what I read, kind of this personal transformation that you went through where you find this person who has, is more centered. Even when you gave that lecture at Trinity, I felt as if you were centered. Very interesting. Uh, and everybody's got a story. You may not be verbalizing it, but you have a story. Everybody's got a story of, of who they are, who they want to be, how they want to be, what their sort of goals are. And we're all influenced by, you know, the people that we're around, the people that we grow up with and et cetera. And my story is probably more complex than the average person's. That doesn't mean I'm smarter, I'm better or anything. It's just, it's more complex in the sense that it, it goes back to, um, you know, my, my very young years because as, as I was growing up, my father was a, a, a immigrated to the United States from Germany. He was a, a survivor of the Holocaust. Uh, my mother uh, grew up in New England, the Boston area. And, um, and they met in Georgia, a southern state. And, um, and I was, you know, born, uh, I was a, I was born, I guess you would call a, a baby that shouldn't have, you know, that shouldn't have lived. I was born at a time, two pounds and 10 ounces at a time, babies like that died. And uh, I was in an oxygen tent for six weeks. And, uh, and so it was a miracle. I was called the miracle baby by that hospital uh, that, uh, you know, it was sort of a miracle I lived. And, and so when I was raised, my parents were very protective of me uh, because I was fragile in the beginning. And they ended up moving out of Atlanta, Georgia, the big city into the rural Georgia. And basically at a time in the United States where there was lots of social divisiveness, uh, a lot of uh, issues racially, a lot of issues vis-a-vis -vis religion, uh, we were outsiders, all right? We were outsiders in a small town and, uh, and we were 
um, you know, I, I, I grew up watching things happen uh, and watching my father's life be threatened and watching, you know, um, people put, you know, nails under my mother's car so the tires would all be flat. So I grew up in an environment that was very, very unusual. And from that environment, I was, my, my father was my primary source of strength, of courage. Um, and he taught me, um, you know, how to stand up for myself, how to have courage. Uh, and he role modeled courage. I mean, his life was threatened two or three times. And, uh, uh, and he basically, you know, when his life was threatened, he told people, I'll be sitting outside waiting for you. And he'd go outside and sit in a lawn chair and wait. He didn't have any guns or anything. And, uh, and that's how I grew up in a way of that I didn't fit in. And I had to learn how to basically uh, stand up for myself, how to have courage. But the, the thing that really changed my life was uh, uh, another person. Uh, not my family. Um, the small town I grew up in had a, uh, one high school. Um, it had one of the best football teams in the state of Georgia. And the head football coach was like God. Uh, he was the most powerful man in town. And at the end of my seventh grade, before going to high school in the eighth grade, I got a phone call from him. And he said, uh, Ed, he said, would you like to become an athletic trainer the football team? I said, coach, I don't know what an athletic trainer does. He said, would you like to do that? I says, well, I don't know how to tape ankles. He says, I'll teach you. I'll teach you. And I said, well, let me ask my parents. And I called him back. I says, yeah, that, that sounds like fun, coach. And he says, all right, this is what I want you to do. I want you to come to my house every morning at 730 for the next five years. And you're going to ride to school in my car. And I will bring you home in the afternoon. So all of a sudden, the most powerful man in that community put his hand over my head and said, he is with me. Leave this family alone. And he not only did that, he taught me how to be an athletic trainer. He got me the opportunity to write my first article when I was in the 12th grade. And it was the first published article by a student athletic trainer in a coaching coach magazine in the United States and he got me a full athlete, full scholarship to college to go be an athletic trainer at the University of Florida what he did was is he he basically always said I want you to do this and when I'd say I don't know how to do that he says I know that but I know you'll go figure it out go figure it out so I had to go figure stuff out and so all my life I have been figuring stuff out that's why I've had you know, I was trained professionally as a lawyer, but I've had four different careers because I had the confidence going back from the coach, the confidence, go out there and figure it out. Okay. You're going to make mistakes, but learn from your mistakes. Just make sure your mistakes are small mistakes. Mm -hmm. And uh, in that sort of, you know, that's how I was taught also by my, my, my mother. My mother was an avid reader. We were very poor, uh, and I'm giving you too much information, I'm sure. But, I mean, she'd save up 
money. And once a month, she'd take my brother and I to a little bookstore, and she says, you can buy two books. So I bought books about, you know, fiction, nonfiction, about famous people, where they lived, okay, doctors, lawyers, athletes, politicians. And I'd read, and I'd sit there saying, I wonder if it's possible for me to live in New York or live in Washington, or is it possible for me to go see and meet people like that. So I also had that opportunity to know there's a big world out there. Mm. And the limitations are not, you know, is you can you can you can go into those worlds and try to learn about them and explore them. So I was curious. Mm. I was I was not afraid of the unknown. I was raised to basically go into the unknown and figure stuff out. And so that's, that's, and that, and I'm not saying I'm the brightest bulb in the pack. Okay. It's just that I, I became who I am because I had angels looking after me, the football coach, his wife, my parents were wonderful. Uh, and then when I went on in my life, um, you know, I, you know, there's other stories I can, I could story you to death, but I mean, you know, I mean, I ended up going to, to law school and, you know, that decision was made, you know, after everybody had been accepted in law school and there were no openings. So there's been other people in my life that changed my trajectory. I went from going to be a psychologist to going to law school uh, because of Senator Robert Kennedy meeting him. Mm-hmm and spending time with him and saying, I want to go be a lawyer. All right. And I went into law and, you know, I, I did my law thing, but decided I wanted to do social justice and, mm-hmm. and tried that. And then I said, wait a minute. And then I got the opportunity from another person. This person was a lawyer who trained me. He be- became a CEO of a global investment banking firm. He calls me out of the blue and says, how about come up and see me in New York tomorrow? Mm-hmm. I go up and he says, I'd like you to, to join my senior staff and do, I want you to be in charge of all IPOs and fundraising and for the company. And I looked at him and I said, I don't know how to do an IRR. <laughs> I've never been in finance. He says, I know that, but I know you'll learn by Saturday. <laughs> and so I had these events, major life-changing events, which and uh, which came to me because other people saw something in me. Hmm. But then you also talk about this event that, that kind of shaped your life. When uh, I read, when you came home and you yes. were talking to your wife uh, and she says something like, uh, uh, I don't know, you, you're not the Ed that I remember or something like that. Yes, yes. And yeah. I think that was an important transition of your life. Can you talk a little bit about that? I was consumed with my work. Uh, I was uh, uh, very work focused and get it done. I took care of everybody that reported to me, but I didn't have time for chit chat. You know, I never asked the people that worked for me, well, how's your family? Okay, how are the kids? What do y'all want to do? Or where are you going on vacation? I never had time. I was focused on getting the deals done, getting the job done. And I was a machine. 
I was kind. I promoted people. People wanted to go to uh, take courses. I paid for their courses. I even promoted them out of my um, department because they wanted to go somewhere. I took care of my people, but I was never there as a human being. You know, I worked, you know, 15 hours a day, you know, and, uh, and, you know I was flying all over the world. If you think about it, a, a, a poor kid uh, from the country who, you know, goes to a law school that requires suit and coat and tie every day, and his parents only have enough money to buy him one coat which I wore seven days a week for four months until I got the law changed. All right. Uh, I mean, so if you think about it, here I was, I was in Paris and London and, you know, Singapore and Japan and doing business. I mean, it was just looked right. like a, a dream come true. Dream, a dream come true. But what it was is, but I was a machine. I was, I was a kind person, a caring person. I took care of everybody. But my wife was right. And she basically, you know, sat down and said, you're never here when you're here. You're all about your work. That's not working for me. It's not working for our daughter. You've got to be, you know, and she says, I need, I, we have to talk about this. And this is when I did the stupidest thing in my life. It shows you how far gone I was. It's embarrassing to say. Uh, I said, I was listening to her. We were at the breakfast table. She says, I said, you're exactly right. We, we need to talk about this, but I'm, I'm sorry. I have a very important meeting I need to go to. Can we talk about it tonight when I get up? Oh. And I got up and left. So what did I say by doing that? My work was more important. You found my, my married life and I got home and there was a note which says we've moved out uh, we're going to separate for some months until you can figure out who you are and that was one of three events which happened in two weeks which sort of that was like a major blow a week later my, my brother and I had invested not invested we had built and created a new type of business uh, um, and basically building a car dealership that was world-class with all of everything and taking cars two to three years old and reselling them and it was a precursor to a big company that now exists which is not our company and so you know i i had so we were in this business and that's also was part of the problem because I spent some weekends there most of the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, my brother called me and said, bro, we got a problem. There's been a million dollar theft from the, oh. and I need $500,000 from you by the end of the week. And so I actually put the phone down and fell into the floor and started crying. All right. This was in my early thirties. Only time I ever cried in my life. And I said, I'm losing everything. I'm, you know, I'm just da, 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 da. The next week, all right, so I'm just giving you how much it took to, to make me. The next week, I was in the final two for CEO of a major company. And the, the recruiter, the partner, senior partner, called me up and says, I'd like to take you to lunch next week. And I says, 
each time. <laughs> got it. I got it. I'm the winner. I'm going to become CEO of that company. And I mean, I was just smiles and stuff. We go to lunch and he says, you're the most qualified person. I said, well, thank you. I'm looking forward to the job. And he said, I'm not going to give you the job. He says, you are the most qualified, but you're not going to be, you're never going to be happy. You always want another mountain to climb. You'll stay at this job two to three years and you're going to leave my client high and dry. It took though it took three big events for me to say, I got to get help. And I did find help from a world-class, I called a lot of people I talked to, mm -hmm. said, the best executive coach around, mm -hmm. da, 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 da. and found a woman who had a, she was a doctor and a PhD, uh, Columbia University. She was, she was probably my, my parents' age, a uh, wonderful person, and she was a psychologist. And she basically said, I'll listen to your story. And she says, you're a machine, son. You're not a human mm -hmm. being. You're a machine. You're a work machine. You're darn good at it, <laughs> but you're a machine. And I said, can you help me? I says, she said, do you want to be helped? <laughs> if you want to become a human being, I'll help you. And I looked at her and I says, please help me. <laughs> and so she did. And that was the turning point. And what did you learn about yourself when you went through that, through that process? I learned why I was the way I was, that I was basically trying to make the coach happy, make my parents happy, mm -hmm. even make my wife happy, that that was the way I, that's the way I had gotten really my, I had gotten to where I was because I worked very hard. I thought doing good with other people and mm -hmm. I didn't realize it was okay. They needed more than just my stardom, so to speak. Mm -hmm. They needed more than just the money. They needed love. They need caring. They needed time. Mm -hmm. They needed somebody to be there, uh, really be there. And, uh, and uh, you know, that sort of, she started me on the process of coming to peace with and, and having the courage to basically say, okay, you, you know, put limits. I want you to basically ask about their families. I want you to take them to lunch and don't talk business. And then I'll, let's see what this experiment does. And so I started working hard. It, okay, I need to show people I care about them as people, not just as means to an end. And talking about the family, meeting the kids. And all of a sudden, my team's performance went off the charts. And it all sounds sort of fairy tale. It wasn't, I can tell you, it was, it was, it was hard. But it's a journey that I'm still on. And it's a journey of, you know, the journey to best self, working on mm -hmm. one's self and taking ownership of one's mind, all right? Uh, taking ownership of one's ego, taking ownership of one's, how one acts and the words you use and owning, if you will, uh, uh, the being that's inside of you and learning how to achieve inner peace um, and how to manage your mind and manage your ego and manage your body and, and 
own your words and own your behaviors. Uh, and that got me into philosophy, real deep into philosophy. Got me reading about the seven great religions and seeing how all everybody brings the same answers to the to uh, the to the game, um, and the, the overlap is huge. And that's the last three books. That's been the basis of the last three books that I've done, of trying to share that with people uh, from all walks of life. As I look back on it, it's very magical. Not because I'm that. I'm, this has nothing to do with my this day. Don't really know why people saw something in me that they were willing to invest in. I'm deeply grateful. I remember them in my nightly prayers, my nightly meditation. I remember them all. Uh, you know, I've got, I've had 25 angels in my life. You have an aura. Everyone has an aura and we can take ownership of that aura. And that has impact with other people, how they basically view us, react to us and whether they trust us and whether they want to help us or whether they care about us and stuff. And it's, it all comes down to, to, managing oneself. That's that's why one of the practices I teach and the practices I've worked on for years is, is, you know, to be able to manage one's emotions, being able to manage your negative emotions, but also to be able to generate positive emotions. And so to manage how one behaves and comes across, one has to basically manage what's in effect the chemicals that are in our body, which is the emotions. Uh, and, you know, and when you work hard on, you know, uh, you know, positive emotions and you learn how to generate positive emotions, all right, and create them and, and you know, and use different practices to do that and you bring that to the table, you're more peaceful. It's okay. Where's this going? What's going on? What's not being said? Why is Jim quiet? Mm -hmm. How do I basically ask Jim what's he thinking about without having him feel like I'm putting him on the spot? Mm -hmm. How do I make help Jim feel comfortable? How do we set up the rules of engagement so people understand that it's not a competition? And so it's a whole way of life of, mm -hmm. of but what's so fascinating about it it goes back to the seven greater religions and to the great eastern and western philosophies that all of the learnings that are thousands of years old still apply today the people that end up having a better chance of having a meaningful life with meaningful work and relationships and happiness are people that are have embraced the teachings historical teachings mm -hmm. that have stood the test of time. There's, you know, that's probably one of the things that I still don't understand when it comes to what's a meaningful life, what's meaningful work, you know? I still don't quite understand my own personal definition of meaningful work or meaningful life. What do you think are the keys or the aspects of having a meaningful life and meaningful work. Let's do it this way for a moment. Okay. You want to role play? Yes. Have a conversation. Okay. 
what does what does meaningful work mean to you what what would make work meaningful uh what what would you know type of work but what if you define meaningful work what would be your purpose purpose yes what, so what when i when i think about meaningful work i think about work that you work with people so you have a collaborative effort in doing something and usually what i've seen is that um when I'm by myself and I work by myself, I tend to not feel quite happy, you know, huh? but when I work with other people, yeah. it, there is something about working with other people that kind of energizes me. So I think uh, it would be collaborative work with other people. And then probably I would say working on something that is, doesn't have to change the world, but it has to have an impact, a positive impact for somebody, you know. That's an outstanding definition. And if you if you if you just stop and think about it, meaningful work involves is more meaningful when you're doing stuff with people. All right. And and the stuff we're doing, if it can have a positive impact on somebody else, that's like really great, good stuff. Yeah. And, and that is what meaningful work and, and um, uh, is, is about. And meaningful work is created or enabled by people having meaningful relationships with other people, special types of relationships caring, trusting relationships, not competitive relationships. Mm. And so when you, when you look at the, and which brings in emotions, okay? Do I, you know, you go, if you go into, uh, let's say you put on a new team, mm -hmm. what's the most important thing a team leader needs to do in the beginning? needs to help everybody get to know each other mm -hmm. because the science is overwhelming. Caring, trusting teams outperform competitive teams. Caring, trusting teams means people, I care for you, I trust you. You trust me, I'm not going to hurt you. This mm -hmm. is not competition. Uh, we're not going to, you know, embarrass anybody each other uh we're going to accept who we are and our and we're going to play to our strengths and help each other be better those are the types of 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 managers leaders that basically create the environment mm -hmm. where the two biggest inhibitors to learning or achieving or creating is ego and fear mm -hmm. our ego that we're right we got to look right we got to be the one with the best idea you know so it's all about you know servicing our ego and then fear fear of looking bad fear of not being liked and you got to uh, you got to basically mitigate ego and fear mm 
in order to basically create an environment where it's what I call caring, trusting teams. People open up, and what you what you what you find, and so your definition of meaningful work, all right, and you know, really means you're talking about meaningful relationships and about having positive impact. There is no better goal. And but then, how do you find? How do you? How do you? How do you get there? Because it's so it's so challenging, you know. You do your best when you're interviewing for jobs mm -hmm. to ask the questions. To ask questions that's going to illuminate whether there's a likelihood mm -hmm. that you can have meaningful relationships with colleagues and meaningful work and purposeful work here. And so it comes down to discovery uh, and asking the right questions. And and there's no, when I say right, asking the questions that it sort of will elicit back. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, let's say you're doing an, an, an interview uh, for a job. Uh, and let's say that I'm working at the company already. I'm not the manager. I'm, I'm another teammate in marketing. And we're just going to role play here in your job. I mean, so think about it. what are some of the questions you would ask Ed about, you know, my ma my manager, uh, who would be your manager. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, you know, Ed, uh, uh, you know, uh, how many how many times a month do you Go to lunch with uh, Jim or Jane. Mm -hmm. uh, they don't generally ask me to lunch. Oh, really? Okay. Um, well, do they? You know, uh, do they ever ask you personal questions about you know what your sports or your family or you know your vacations? No, no. We we just work hard here. We just work hard here. You know, and so mm -hmm. it, when by just by questioning people. Uh, uh, because everybody talks a big game. Mm -hmm. you know, I care about my people. I'm going to give, train my people. I'm going to help my people. But a high percentage of people only care about one thing, the bottom line results. Mm -hmm. right? They don't care about me or you. And it's figuring out, well, how do I figure out and find those places where it's more likely that this caring, trusting relationships are going to occur? occur. Uh, and generally speaking, and when you're interviewing, you'll, you'll want to interview, you will interview people that are pe sort of peers, and you will ask questions. And many times it's what's not said, which gives you the, in, the information you know, mm -hmm. all right, because they're not going to say anything bad about their boss. But it's it's how quick they respond. Oh yeah, he's great about doing that, or she's great about doing that. We have so much fun, and so it's okay. sort of like you get you get a feel for you know, and you ask questions. Well, you know, how often do you get uh, feedback? Oh, we get feedback all the time. Oh, give me an example of feedback you had yesterday. Mm -hmm. and people say, Oh, um, well, I didn't say much yesterday. Okay, how about feedback? last week um, um, and you know just just and I'm role-playing now just my stuttering mm -hmm. or you can 
you can get a feel for a place and it's not perfect, mm -hmm. but you sort of have to say, how would the place I want to work at be? How would people behave mm -hmm. and visualize that and then see, go in there and am I seeing any of this? What am I seeing and sensing? Does, does that make sense? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. And I think, I think it's one of those, one of the most challenging things uh, ever to find uh, uh, a place that is meaningful to you. But then there is something that a quite, it's a quite, it's, it's a challenge for me, which is uh, the fear of uncertainty. How do you, how do you deal with that? Has it ever happened to you that you were fearful about the future? And uh, how do you, how do you deal with that? Because I personally feel I'm one of those people who uh, always envision my life ahead, you know, and sometimes I have difficulties staying in the present moment. And therefore, since I always think about the next day, I don't know what's going to happen the next day. And so I kind of sometimes feel I'm fearful about the future, about not figuring out my life, about not doing something that I truly love or not having an impact on the world, even if it's small. So how do you deal with the fear of uncertainty? Yeah. And, and fear is there and fear will be, will fear will not, will not go away. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe unless you're the Dalai Lama, all right. Mm -hmm. You meditate four hours a day uh, and I'm not being facetious or anything, but I mean, you know, they're, you know, I mean, I've been working on this for a long time. And I mean, just last weekend, Saturday night, I woke up and I mean, I couldn't go back to sleep. I was fearful of X ha something happening, which was very, you know, which is unusual for me. But so, I mean, fear doesn't go, go away. And so there's a couple, couple of things and there's no one right answer. It depends on people. It, it comes, it comes down to how you train yourself, mm -hmm. how, how, what's my definition of who I am? What's the type of person I want to be? How do I ingrain that in me? And, and in, in most cases, in most cases, part of that definition is understanding that so much of life is uncertain and and all we can control is what's going on in our mind our ego our body our emotions our behaviors our words so so long as i'm doing a good job in controlling them and so how do i control my fear uh, couple of ways you ask yourself where's this coming from mm -hmm. where's this coming from there's always going to be uncertainty but uncertainty is also opportunity all right um am i fearful of looking bad fearful of being fired fearful of you know when, when my wife and i had separated i was very fearful of her divorcing me so i was you know i said i gotta i gotta change who i am mm -hmm. so you know something like that but 
so many times fear is a negative emotion you have to accept it you can't let it control you and you have to move on from it unless you're talking about something physical your health's at stake your life's at stake someone's pointing a gun at you i'm not talking about that but just the, the fear that comes up that just shows up in our mind wow i may get fired or this is not working i'm going to be in trouble uh i'm not getting to where i want it's 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 listen to that fear and then having a conversation with it and saying wait a minute you don't have any data mm -hmm. you're just feeling something and i'm looking at my past and i haven't done anything in the past that ever generated the real bad thing or whatever or i've made mistakes and i've learned and you try to control the fear and there's practices to control the fear uh, deep breathing practices meditation practices but also also if, if you will having a conversation with the with the fear it's telling the fear this is who i really am okay i'm not who you are, think i am mm -hmm. and i'm going to be me uh, i mean and so it's 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 and it all sort of sounds a little soft you got to take ownership of the fear the fear doesn't own you you own the fear mm -hmm. And you have those conversations with yourself. You also, you know, read some of the practices. How do you manage negative emotions? You know, uh, one area people say you basically get above yourself. You make believe you jumped onto the ceiling and you're looking down at yourself. All right. Uh, there's other ways that, that and each person picks their way that they deal with it. Uh, and you can control it. Would it go away forever? No, mm -hmm. because it's always sort of part of us. Um, but it's it comes back to who owns you? Mm. Who owns you? Who owns what's going on in your mind? Who owns your words? Mm -hmm. Who owns your behaviors? It's an interesting concept. Um... And, and 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 you find that really happy people do the work to take ownership of self happy people do the homework to take ownership of themselves of and so you see if you if you talk with very successful happy people a large percent of them have daily practices hmm. okay you know and that they do things each day to keep bring themselves to the right state of being to go out into the world you know whether it's 30 minutes in the morning an hour in the morning or time here but they do daily practices to, that helps them manage mindfulness meditation all right loving kindness meditation deep breathing exercises um, gratitude exercises uh, you know every every night giving gratitude to the people that helped you that day or every and writing gratitude notes to people or saying the next day going in and just saying hey thank you so much for helping me yesterday i really appreciate it you know sharing back gratitude all of that is a positive statement and an acceptance of the fact that 
I don't know everything. No person can achieve their greatness by themselves. Mm-hmm. That's so true. And so it's that it's that self-work, but it's also having that essence, that mm-hmm. being that people feel comfortable with you and you can have conversations that are, um, it can be difficult conversations. They can be courageous conversations. They can be exploratory conversations. Let's go into the unknown and figure this out. Mm-hmm. You know, do you remember learning how to ride a bicycle? When yeah. You, when you rode a, rode a bicycle, more than likely this is what happened. Okay. Someone held the bicycle and helped you on and you started pedaling and you fell over. Mm-hmm. Right. You may or may not cried. You may or may not dusted yourself off. But it's highly likely you got back on and you tried again. Well, life is like riding a bicycle. And as you grow and change, and you will, and I will, and I'll continue, we will. It's like, you know, let's get up and get back on the bike. And, you know, and we're not going to lay in the dirt and cry for five minutes. Let's get back up on the bike and let's work this thing out. And that's, you know, that's the, that's the game because people beat themselves up so much when they make mistakes. Everybody mm-hmm. makes mistakes. Just don't make the same mistake twice. Yeah. I think, uh, the fear of the unknown is something that is always in the back of my mind, but I think everybody has that fear. I mm-hmm. don't think, uh, uh, at different stages, at different stages of your life, uh, you're always going to have that fear of, I don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. And, and, so, and we, we don't know. And that's where the choice comes. Okay. Mm-hmm. I don't know. How do I manage that? How do I take ownership and have more control over what happens to me? Well, I can have more control what happens to me by having more control about who I am. You know, does XYZ own me because he knows how to jerk my chain and get me upset? Yeah, it sounds like he does. You need to work on that. All right. We are built wired, mm-hmm. scientifically wired, all right, to basically go out in the world and seek confirmation of what we believe, affirmation of our story of who we are, of our ego. We are emotionally defensive. If challenged, we deny, defend, deflect. Okay. And we seek cohesiveness of our stories of how our world works. Every human being's wired that way. The people that can go into the unknown and figure stuff out, the people that can operate at the highest levels have learned ways to overcome that wiring. Hmm. And that's probably the thing that made you so successful is the ability of, as you were talking about, learn, reinvent yourself multiple times and reinvent, reinvent, reinvent. It's hard to do. It's so hard to do. It's, it's hard to do, but what's so f- fascinating is it's the hardest the first time. Hmm. It gets easy. I mean, I know people that are very good at doing it. They don't think twice about it. It's almost natural. Well, what's the unknown that we're afraid of or we don't know about? Okay, because some people don't even want to use the word afraid. What do we don't know? Okay, well, how do we go explore that? Let's be explorers. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, you know, 
uh, you, you have teams that say, I want to be an explorer. Okay, let's go explore. Here's the ground rules. We can't do this because that would basically hurt somebody, or we can't do that because that would, you know, blow up the company. Uh, but, you know, let's have the, some ground rules. Let's go explore. And, okay, well, what are the tools to go explore? Okay, you know, well, what do we think is the result that we're looking for? Oh, okay, this is what we want to end up. Okay, well, what must be true for that to happen? Oh, about to make that list. Now, what's the second list? What if true makes that not happen? Oh, okay. Well, what do you think you need to go explore? Well, we need to go find out which one of these things is happening. Yeah, and oh, wow, which one do you think would be the easiest to go explore? Uh, well, we go find the ones that are good. No, because there may be some good and some bad. Why don't you go find the ones, the things that if they're happening, it's not good. Mm -hmm. Go find disconfirming information. Instead of being wired to seek confirmation, rewire yourself so you know when to go seek disconfirmation. And then you can use disconfirmation to create the new. I think this ability that you, something that comes from a place of humility, I think you gotta be very, you have the, you need to have the humility to say, I'm just gonna figure it out, you know? That's right, that's right. It, it comes from humility. I mean, and, and that's why, you know, the book you, you mentioned you were gonna read, mine, humility, and mine and my co-authors. Uh, humility is the new smart. That's why that title is there. And, mm -hmm. and new smart has five components, all right, that help you get there. I'm defined not by what I know or how much I know, but by the quality of my mm -hmm. thinking, listening, relating, and collaborating. Mm -hmm. So it's no more me competing, I know more than you. No. Mm -hmm. It's the quality of how I engage, how I listen. We're crappy listeners. We are wired to hear what we believe. And if somebody's saying something that's not the same as ours, our immediate reaction is you're wrong. Men generally are not good collaborators with other people because we're so competitive, okay? Science from MIT and Carnegie Mellon is overwhelming, okay? Multiple studies. The most, the most best, the best teams are teams made up of five women and no men. Oh. The second best teams are four women and one man. The third best teams is three women and two men because women are wired differently than us. They're wired more like I want to be and you want to be meaningful relationships, listening to people, caring, trusting, getting to the right answer, not ego. All right. Now there's there are people, there are women that have big egos and there's yeah. men that don't. Okay. It's not all or nothing. But if you go back to the, the, the new smart, so I'm, I'm defined not by what I know or how much I know, but the quality of my thinking, listening, relating, and collaborating. So what does that mean? I got to work on my quality. My stories, my mental models are not reality. 
They're only my stories of how my world works. That's probably one of the most fascinating things to me because I look at the world and I believe that what I see is reality, but instead it's not. Mm-hmm. And it's so fascinating. And yeah. everything that I, um, everything that I read or everything when I speak or when I listen to things, I may get that part that wants to reinforce that idea that I'm right. Yeah. And it's so interesting to me. Yes. And, and you're quite correct. That's the way we're, we're wired. And, and the, the key is, is coming to the, if you look at the science about less than 1% of the stimuli that's coming into my brain now, and going into your brain now, less than 1% is processed. We only process what we expect or what we already know. Which we're we're just, we're really, we're really confirmation, affirmation, defensive mechanism. Mm -hmm. We can change that once we accept that by one, training our mind, all right, and getting it still, so we're more open to perceiving things, okay? If you ask people that are really, really good at exploring, figuring out the unknown, creating things, they have reached the state which they're very quiet inside, Mm. and just let things come. And then they don't rush to judgment. They let it sort of sit and all of a sudden the highest order of thinking is emergent thinking. When you get the body right and the mind right and everything and you give things time to come, your subconscious goes to work. And that's where the idea is, aha, what about this? And the other part of New Smart, besides the my mental models and everything, I'm not my ideas. I must decouple my ideas not my values, from my ego. Don't define yourself by what you think you know. Define yourself by how you be, how you act, how you behave, mm-hmm. right? how you communicate. I must be open-minded and treat my beliefs as hypothesis to be constantly tested and retested, subject to modification by better data. And if you look at one company, one hedge fund, big hedge fund, the United States, Bridgewater Associates, uh, Ray Dalio, uh, I wrote a 54-page chapter in my Learn or Die book that was well, the first time he allowed somebody to share his, but he built a great hedge fund by, I'm not my ideas, I must be open-minded, treat my ideas as hypothesis to be constantly stress tested subject to modification by better data. Hmm. What better data? What data would would say I'm wrong? Well, go hunt for that data. Hmm. Go hunt for it. Uh, and mistakes and opportunity mistakes and failures are opportunities to learn. And so when you you think about that, you think about that, that type of philosophy, what I call new smart, what's it trying to do? It's trying to help us overcome our internal wiring 
to be efficient, speedy, confirmation, affirmation, defensive people. And you don't have to figure out what it's going to, you know, you're, I think you said you were 28. You don't have to figure out what's going to be at 50. Try to figure out where you want to be in 35 or 33. All right. Because the world you're living in, I'm living in too, but the world we're living in, we're, we're in a state of radical impermanence. Change and the velocity of change can be faster and faster. It's going to be technology driven. It's going to be geopolitical driven. It's going to be social divisiveness driven. Lots of issues. And so, you know, don't worry about 30 years from now, 20 years from now, five years from now. You know, worry about, okay, where am I going to be in two years? What do I want to be in two years? What do I want to be doing in two years? How do I want to be in two years? Okay, well, how am I going to get that way? Well, I'm working real hard now and I want to have a social life. Okay, but how much time am I going to spend on myself, improving myself the way Ed's been talking about this stuff? Do I need to spend, you know, an hour a day? Hmm. Well, I, I can't start it an hour a day. What do I do? Well, I started 10, 15 minutes a day. Okay, and what do I work up to? Well, you work up to, definitely work up to an hour. Okay, and then am I done? No, because you find really good people, you know, work on themselves two hours a day. Mm -hmm. Well, that may be 15, 20 years from now. But the fact is, is that, you know, you have, you sort of have a plan mm -hmm. that how am I going to basically, how am I going to start my process so that I have a better chance of having meaningful work, which means meaningful work relationships and happiness, meaningful life, you know, over my life. So, okay, what am I going to do for the next year? And maybe just go year by year, you know, every January 1st, here are my, here are my personal improvement goals for this year. And grade yourself every day and your, your goals will change. When you say work on yourself, what are some things that you recommend doing? I know that you do your daily intention in the morning. Yeah. And I yeah. think it's very important. Is there anything else that you say, do these two things every day? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'll tell you what's worked for me and what also the science shows works for most everybody that does it. Okay, so this has nothing to do with me. I'm no mm -hmm. great big star or nothing. I'm just very fortunate have the opportunity to learn about this stuff. Uh, meditation, mindfulness meditation, uh, deep breathing exercises, gratitude meditation. Uh, if you started, if you, if you started uh, with daily intentions, which is defining how you want to be that day in very granular, you know, words all right and hold yourself accountable you know you start meditation people starting meditation you know you start with mindfulness meditation you work on it try to do it five minutes a day uh you don't get frustrated i mean the first time i did it i quit and that was wrong <laughs> uh i got frustrated uh but you you know you get up to the point and it'll take you it could take you you know let's just say a year you get up to 20 minutes a day, that 
that's the base sort of minimum you need. Um, and then you do gratitude practice, okay? Uh, thank yous, who are you going to thank today? Who are you going to, you know, send a card to? Who are, you know, how are you going to practice gratitude? Deep breathing, you learn deep breathing exercises. They're easy to learn because when you go out in the world and everything and you feel yourself getting tense or you're going into a meeting and you're all wired up, First thing you do is you do your deep breathing exercise, you know. Breathe in, counting to five. Breathe out, counting to five. And do that three, four times. And all of a sudden you feel more relaxed. Body's more still. If not, do a few more. Okay, anytime you feel fear or you feel your ego getting you, or you feel uh, uh, um, my pulse is going so uh, my heart's pumping. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm in this, I'm in this, you know, go, go, go. Deep breathing. And that can, that can, if it takes two or three minutes, you can do that all through the day. But that helps quiet everything down so that you're more open-minded. You start out small. I mean, I remember when I started out meditating, uh, it was... I mean, it, it was hard because what did you do when you try to be quiet and your mind starts talking? And the purpose of meditation is to train your mind not to think, but to be quiet. Something comes along, you just say, breathe in, breathe out, breathe in, let it go. Hmm. And the science is overwhelming. This is all, there's so much science on this now from Stanford and Wisconsin and Mass General and Harvard. Yeah. I, I was watching an interview with Ray Dalio, and he's a big advocate of meditation, mindful meditation. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, so, uh, is it? Um, I guess. Um, so I don't take so much of your time today. <laughs> um, I wanna. Any of, it, any of it making any sense? It makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense, and I just, I love having these conversations because it makes me realize like how much work I have to do myself, you know, to become a better version of myself in the future. So I kind of want to finish our conversation because I know that you're very busy. So uh, it's my first interview, so I don't know how long should I go, but uh, I um, have two more questions. One um, is something that, um, so I was watching this interview and uh, every guest of every interview um, has a question for the next guest. And I thought it was a very interesting concept to have. The problem is that you're my first guest, so I have nobody, nobody before. So I went to my grandmother and I said, uh, nonna, which means grandmother in Italian. I said, uh, um, so I'm having this interview with uh, Edward and is there anything, anything that you want to ask? And, uh, you know, she's 19 years old. So um, she's by herself because she lost uh, her husband a couple, 10 years ago. And you know, one of one of the most pressing questions of her life is is death, you know? And so she goes, ask Edward how he thinks about death. He's if he's afraid of death, how he uh manages the thought of death. It's an important question. Uh, she's a smart woman. Um yes, I think about death. I mean I'm I'm in, you know, I I, I, I know I am going to die sometime. Um, 
I I have created a story for for my myself uh, in in the sense that believing that you know that when I die yes I will be gone but there's there's the chance uh, that you know I'll see my football coach mm -hmm. or I'll feel his spirit us would else I'll be wherever my mother and father are I will, I will be with them I'll be with the coach I'll be with this and so uh, you know I've told myself a little story uh, it is the physical end, but we have no idea whether there's a different end. And so, you know, it'll be what it will be. And for me, I spend, I spend time saying to myself, prepare yourself for when this comes, because you want to leave in a manner that does not cause a lot of pain for other people so you know uh you know i've have have had acquaintances and friends that have passed away and their going out was uh, very sad um and because they behaved in ways that really upset their family and their loved ones were all pain and so training yourself that you know okay how do I want to go out and so that's what I I'm working on and how do I you know and visualizing how I actually want to be in those last moments or last days uh, so that I leave positive with the world and not negative or fear with the world do you have uh, a question for the next guest whoever is gonna be <laughs> or she a question that maybe is pressing on your mind. I guess a question that's and depends on the, the obviously on the guest. But I'm very interested in your generation, uh, and even some generations that are a little older than you, as to what, how are you viewing what's coming. And how are you going to adapt yourself and learn how to adapt so you have the chance of creating a life that you want? And the purpose of the question is to get people started on the answer. Mm -hmm. Oh, wait a minute. I'm going to have to adapt. I thought I'd just get in the groove and it's, you know, it's like the jet plane. I'm just going up. Okay. Yeah. No, life's going to be like this, even more so than my life has been. Mm -hmm. All right. Because of technology, uh, climate change. Okay. The geopolitics is changing. I mean, y'all are going to live in very volatile times, which makes it even more important that you do the inner work whatever the inner work is and the inner work for some people will be much less or won't happen but that's their choice mm -hmm. but most people don't know they have a choice mm -hmm. most people don't understand they have a choice as to how i think i have a choice as to what emotions i embrace and what i don't all right 
I have a choice as to what words I use. I mean, mm -hmm. I can I can remember way back when when my was uh, my wife and I were first married. She's a scientist, a very bright woman, and we were having a, a, a disagreement on something. It wasn't that important, but it was something. And I started raising my voice. Mm -hmm. She said, "Wait a minute, time out, time out." She says. She's a scientist. She said, do you realize that when you feel a certain way in your body, you don't have to automatically speak that way? I says, I says well, what do you mean? She says, you can stop and think or take a deep breath and then determine what words you want to use instead of just letting it happen automatically. I said, I didn't know that. She says, I know. That's why I'm telling you. And you need to learn it. 